I've told at least some of this story before, but uh, it was so fitting for today's passage that I, I can't help my little self, so you'll have to hear it again if you've heard it before. Uh, my very first day as a pastor was June 1st, 2011. Here at this church, um, we had moved in earlier in the week, and June 1st, my very first day, my office was over here then. All I was doing was carrying in boxes uh, to put you know, stuff in my, in my office, and between trips, uh, I, had, I had to use the restroom. And so I walked into what was then our only men's restroom, and as soon as I walked in, I was punched right in the face with the reality that someone had left the stool in there in just abysmal shape. It was an oppressive environment in there. Somebody had just laid waste to the facility and left. Upon further investigation, I realized why. That baby was bogged. It was plugged. I'd never been here before as an employee. I knew they had to have a plumber's helper somewhere in the building. So I began my search and found the tool I needed. And there I was, the very first thing I ever did as the pastor of this congregation. And God released us from that bondage that day. Later that week, I made my very first pastoral visit. Uh, Rachel and I went to visit our, the, the eldest members of our congregation. We went to see Leo and Bethine. And uh, we were parked on 12th Street outside of their house. We were having a great visit, and their doorbell rang. And Leo answered the door, and we heard a young man's voice say, Who drives that gray minivan out here? Like Nothing good can come after that, right? He said, Who who drives that gray minivan out here? Because I just saw someone run into it and take off, and they're gone. And that's how the Lord broke me into ministry. And I've been very grateful ever since. And not just because I get a lot of mileage out of those stories, which I do. But because God taught me from the very beginning, serving the Lord is less glamour and even less about fun than it is about seems like somewhere I heard whosoever would be great amongst you must be your servant right and it's not going to be all fun and games there may be some accidents and some pain and some cost in my service the reason I thought of those stories is because this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we're going to read the story of when God installed Samuel into his new position. Uh, not as a pastor, as, a, as something greater, as a prophet of God, a full-on prophet of God, which is a huge deal. But the way God is going to do it, He's going to make sure that, uh, that Samuel knows Serving me is not going to always be fun and enjoyable. 
and glamorous. Let's read our passage this morning. We're going to read basically chapter 3. The very first part of chapter 4, uh, the first ver- half of the first verse really goes with today's passage. So we're going to throw that in as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 3 reads this way. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, that's the high priest, and word for the Lord from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time that Eli was lying down in his place. Now, Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. But the Lord called Samuel and Samuel said, here I am. And Samuel ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go lie down again. So Samuel went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Verse 8. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. Samuel arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you again, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Verse 15, So Samuel lay down until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. And Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, Here I am. Eli said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. He said, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Thus Samuel grew. and The Lord was with him. And let none of Samuel's words fail. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And thus, or that's how the word of Samuel came to all Israel. That's our passage this morning. 
Verse 1 of chapter 3 kind of sets the scene. It reminds us that Samuel was this little boy at one point serving in the tabernacle at Shiloh. We don't have any idea how old Samuel was in this passage. You still call a boy, so at the most he's like 19 or something. Maybe he's a teenager, maybe he's 6 or 8, I don't know. But we're told this. Word from the Lord was rare in those days. And visions were infrequent. Now, in one sense, that shouldn't surprise us at all. Because there's never, there's never been a time on earth when people hearing their own messages directly from God was like normal. There's never been a time like that. So in one sense, you know, a word from the Lord being rare isn't a surprise. It can be, you can get the wrong idea from even from reading the Bible, if you're not careful, because there's a lot of stories in the Bible where people do hear directly from God. Today's passage is one of those. Last week's passage had one of those. When you step back and think about it, if you count the number of people in the Bible who heard directly from God, and then you consider that the Bible covers thousands and thousands of years, even in the pages of Scripture, you have relatively few people over the billions alive in the world that even in those days heard from God. So it's never normal. But what our author is saying is we don't know who the author of 1 Samuel was. It's somebody that compiled like writings of Samuel and David and people because the first and second Samuel get written long after Samuel is dead. And by the time he writes this book, Samuel is in recent memory. And what he, the author wants to make sure people know is like, hey, we didn't always have Samuel. Samuel wasn't always Samuel. When, when this story starts, there wasn't a full-on prophet of God. It had been 400 years since Moses. And so it was rare for people to hear the word of the Lord back then. That's what makes this passage such a big deal. That's what's going to change in this story. So in verses 2 through 10, we, we read this very famous um, and kind of comical story about how God calls young Samuel. Samuel lived at the tabernacle. The tabernacle had been put inside some sort of building and he lived somewhere in that facility in a town called Shiloh. And even though by the end of this story, Samuel's going to be a prophet of God. To be a prophet in Israel, like put you in the Israelite Hall of Fame automatically. Right clear at the top of the food chain. But he doesn't start there. Samuel's a little kid that has very menial tasks. In this story, we can, we can tell he made sure that the, the lamps in the tabernacle had oil in them. He was the oil change kid. Trimmed wicks. There was, he somehow opened and closed the facility to visitors, apparently. Just sort of menial, forgotten tasks. There didn't seem to be much special about this kid. He, there didn't seem to be anything supernatural, for sure, about him. In fact, verse 7, the, the verse that's on the screen at the beginning of this, the author tells us Samuel didn't even know the Lord. He never heard from God. Um, we would say he wasn't even a believer. He didn't, he didn't know God yet. Key word there being 
yet. Because he's going to. And so then we read of this story. Kind of strange, kind of funny. Samuel is asleep, or at least laying down in his bed, or in the, in the tabernacle building. And God calls to him, Samuel. And Samuel says, here I am, which uh, don't try to make that more significant than it really is. That's just kind of the Hebrew figure of speech. We would say, go ahead, or you know, you've got my attention, I'm listening. And God says nothing. So Samuel's like, I'm pretty sure I heard my name. So it must have been Eli, the high priest. So he goes to wherever Eli's room was. And he says, hey, what's up, boss? You called. And Eli says, I didn't call. Go back and lay down. At that point, my assumption is that they both think Samuel probably dreamed that first one. Don't you think? So Samuel goes back and lays down. Happens again. God calls. Samuel. Samuel says, here I am. Nothing. So he goes back to Eli's room. You called that time, right? It's like, Samuel, I didn't call you. Go to bed. So Samuel goes back in and lays down, and it happens a third time. Samuel! Samuel says, here I am. Hello. Nothing. And so he goes into Eli uh, in verse 8. And in my mind's eye, the way I see this going down, is this is Samuel hoping Eli finally lets him off the hook and tells him this was him. Samuel has to know, like, I'm, I'm legit hearing a voice. So if this wasn't him, I must be crazy. Don't you think? He's probably scared. So like, you called me that time, right? Only this time, Eli realizes this is not a young man who's prone to telling stories. You can probably see that he's worried. And so Eli's like, oh man, I think, I think God is talking to Samuel. So he tells Samuel, go, da- go back and lie down. And if this, you hear this voice again, call him by name. He says that that word Lord in the Hebrew is Yahweh, God's proper name. Say, speak, Yahweh, your servant is listening. And so Samuel goes and he lays down again. And then we're told the Lord came and stood there. I, we don't know that he, if Samuel saw anything. I don't know what that looked like. But he called us the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. I just want to point this out. I don't know how significant it is. Notice, Eli said, use God's name. And Samuel, that's the one thing Samuel doesn't do. I don't know if he just felt like he didn't need to identify the speaker. uh, Or he just knew enough to be very respectful with that name. I don't know. But that's how God called young Samuel. Let him know you're going to be my prophet. A prophet is just someone in Israel who God talks directly to so that that person can tell other people what God said directly to them. That's how God installs Eli as a prophet. And we learn some really important stuff 
just from that part of this story. Two things I want to pull out of this part of the story. First, when God is silent, it doesn't mean that God's not working. Or don't confuse God's silence with God's inactivity. They're not the same thing. Here's how I see this in this passage. Why doesn't God just identify himself the first time? I've heard this story my whole life. And I've always thought, why would God just sort of yank this kid around like this? Why not just say, Samuel, here I am. Hey, it's me, God. Is, is he just messing with this kid? Why not, God, why not just wait till he's asleep and put his hand in warm water or something like that, right? Put shaving cream in his strong hand, tickle his nose. What, is that what he's doing? Just messing with the kid? He had to scare him half to death. He has to be confused. God's not messing with Samuel. He's helping him. He helps him a great deal. Here's why. By the end of this passage, word spreads very quickly. All Israel knows this guy's a real prophet. But do you know why? Because it's not Samuel that proclaims himself as a prophet. It's Eli. God orchestrates this so that it's not Samuel. If Samuel wakes up the next morning, God just introduces himself to Samuel. Hey, it's me, God. I'm going to be speaking to you now. And young Samuel walks into the high priest's office or whatever and says, hey, Yahweh stopped by last night. He's going to, get, he's going to be talking to me now. What do you think Eli says? I know what I would have said. No way. Or maybe he would have said, kid, I'm the high priest. If God's going to be talking to anybody, I mean, come on. He's going to talk to the high priest or the oil change kid. Let's be serious here. So God orchestrates this in a way so that it's Eli who realizes God has started talking in Israel again, but he's not talking to me. He's talking to the kid. That's, that's a great lesson for us. Because how many times have you Asked God. Begged God. For something that seems good and, and right and, and, and whatever. And God is just. It can be really easy to fall into the trap of thinking because God is not giving me what I want. That God's not, he's not active in this. And that's not true. God very often does his best work in ways that cannot be discerned. But here's what we can know. That's what's so great about having the Bible. We get to see the end of this little story and look backwards and go, oh man, God knew what he was doing the whole time. Listen, that's going to be the same, same way with your story someday. It may not be in this, on this earth, but someday you are going to look backward over the times where you had no idea what God was possibly thinking, and you're going to go, oh my gosh. He knew what he was doing. He was at work the whole time. Thank you, Lord, for doing exactly what you did. The second thing this little part of this story teaches us is about God's call. It's usually gentle and patient. I love this because it's such a contrast from last week's passage. 
In last week's passage, uh, two of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, who are, I think the, the word is jerks, okay? Uh, we learned last week that those two, God is, God's had it with those two. They've gotten to a point where God is no longer calling them. God is no longer urging them to repent. He's done with them. They've used up all of their chances. And it can be scary to consider that God can get to the point where He doesn't give anyone chances to repent anymore. And it's true. It happened last week. But then we turn the page and we're reminded, but that's not what God's usually like. He doesn't get there quickly. God calls Samuel. Samuel doesn't respond. He doesn't get it. God doesn't berate the kid for not understanding. He just waits and he calls again. And he doesn't get frustrated when Samuel doesn't get it that time. He just waits. And he calls again. And then God brings someone else to help Samuel understand what's going on. You may have, this, this gospel thing, this Christianity may have never clicked for you. Maybe last week you were here and you were wondering if God has somehow hardened your heart if you had gone too far. He hasn't. You know how I know? Because you're here now. And God is calling you right now again. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Remember that one? Calling, O sinner, come home. Our God is slow to anger. He has a furious anger of judgment, but he is slow to pull the trigger. Praise God. All right, that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story, um, once Samuel finally understands, oh, it's God talking, he's going to be talking to me now, and the dialogue between God and his new prophet it begins, and it's open. If you read that story, that's when the party starts, right? That's when good times are had by all. As soon as, oh man, I'm a prophet in Israel now. Aren't we going to have a grand time? This is always going to be awesome. Is that how the rest of the story turns out? No. Did you catch what Samuel's first task is as a prophet? God is gentle and repetitive in his call. Then God says this, okay, Samuel, now that you know who I am and, you know, and I've called you into service and you're going to be my prophet, here's job one. I want you to go into the room of the man who adopted you, took you in, has raised you from a boy, who also happens to be the high priest of Israel, who will be called in a couple of chapters, the judge of Israel. And young man, I want you to tell him that the curse of God that I promised is still on him. Which means his sons are both going to die on the same day. The priesthood's going to be ripped away out of his household, and there is nothing he can do about it. Go get him, tiger. That's way worse than clogged toilets and getting your minivan run into. I can tell you that. That's his first job. And I'm very grateful that it is. Because this section, where God tells Eli that terribly, excuse me, Samuel, that terribly terrifying message... That teaches us some things 
we need to know. It, if nothing else teaches us this, serving God is often difficult. Think about Samuel's young career serving God so far. He's had two jobs. They went from first the monotonous and the taken for granted and the unseen and the unnoticed. And who cares about the one who makes sure there's oil in the lamps? Opens the gate in the morning. He goes from that job to something that is terrifyingly difficult. And that's all he's had as his whole ministry up to this point. That's what a lot of serving God looks like, you know. The thankless and the painful. That's a good percentage. Many people can get fired up hearing a good sermon or whatever and decide they want to serve God. But if we're honest, most of the time we want to serve God sort of on our terms. We want to serve God. Let's see, I want to find something first I'm always going to enjoy. Because let's be honest, I'm probably not going to do it otherwise. And then I kind of want it to be something that other people see and notice. Right? I want it to be appreciated. And if it's not those things, but if we're honest, who are we serving if that's what our service is like? You know what I mean? If all I'm doing is stuff that's going to make me feel good or look good, who am I actually serving? Serving God is, is often monotonous, Difficult and painful. Now, is there joy and victory in serving the Lord? Absolutely. But guess when it comes? And guess who it comes to? Those who are faithful in the monotonous and the difficult and the painful. Read the Bible. This is not just Samuel. This is over and over and over again. The people God calls into His service they don't have it awesome. Their lives are hard. Their lives are painful. And in the middle of the hard pain, they have these moments of unbelievable victory and joy. And you think about, you think about the Christians that you really like respect and think a lot of. I'm not talking about somebody that you just listen to that talks good, like on a podcast. I mean, people you really know. I'll bet you it's people who have been faithful through the difficult and the monotonous, and they've always been there. Because that's what serving God looks like. It's why when Jesus talked about, he gave some examples of, of things that will be rewarded, he didn't, talk about, uh, he didn't talk about people giving the flashiest sermons. He didn't talk about people that had the, the most folks show up to events. He talked about people who were willing to give a cup of cold water to a thirsty person, a little bit of food to a hungry person, somebody who would visit people in prison. Here's the thing about those things. It's not that those are the only rewardable actions. They're not. You have to hang out with people who are constantly hungry and thirsty and locked up. There's going to be a fair amount of difficulty 
and frustration and pain dealing with folks like that. A lot of the joy of serving God comes through that willingness to be faithful to the difficult. And we will miss out on a lot of the joy if we punt during the difficult. There's another lesson in this first task that God gave Samuel, this first difficult task, calling Eli on the carpet, and that's taught actually by Eli. Eli becomes a model for us. Eli, for once in the story, he does something uh, commendable. Because Eli, that morning when Samuel gets up, remember, it's Eli who has noticed God is talking to the oil change kid now. The next morning, you think Eli wants to hear what God said? What does Eli, or what does Samuel do? Samuel gets up and just goes about his chores. He doesn't come running in to tell Eli right away. He goes and he opens up the tabernacle, I assume, like he normally does. And Eli has to, like, pull this out of him. I think Eli can tell. He doesn't want to tell me. This must not be good. And Eli is a model for us that accepting God's word for what it actually is, is always best. Even when what God's word said is offensive to us, is painful to us, is hard for us. Eli says, son, let me have it. I know you don't want, I know you don't want to tell me. But he says in verse 18, this line that I love, he says, it's the Lord we're talking about. Let him do what seems good to him. Let him do what seems good to him. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but what is good to the Lord doesn't always seem good to us. In fact, there have been many times in my life where I thought I had a much better idea than what God has told me to do or not to do. And Eli, in this moment of repentance, says, let God do what's good to God. Because that means it's good, even if it's painful for me. I think Eli is, he's repented at least in some ways. I love Eli. He doesn't attack the messenger. He doesn't ignore the word. Just says, let me hear it and it will be good and sort of so be it. And Eli seems to understand something that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Sometimes all of the repentance in the world as a response to our sin does not take away all the consequences of that sin. That's what, that's what Eli gets told. You're still losing the priesthood. Your sons are still going to die. The curse I gave you last chapter, which was years before this, still stands. And you can offer all the sacrifices you want. They're not going away. Folks, that's still true. That's why sin's so dangerous. The idea that, well, God's going to forgive me anyway is a really dangerous opinion and philosophy. You know, our prisons are full of repentant people. They're still in prison. There are, there are many divorcees who are repentant now. There are many broke people 
who won't gamble anymore. But God's word is always best, no matter when we get confronted with it. Because there's this, this other thing where I can feel like, well, now that I've messed up my life so bad, who cares now? Listen, it's always better to hear God's word and start repenting now. It's always better. Because you don't know what God is going to save you from if you follow Him from here on. Never say, well, it's never, it can't get worse than this. Oh, yes, it can. It's always best to decide Today is the day when I make this change. And I'm going to let God's word be my instruction. And this passage ends, the third little section of this passage is just at the end where first it says, thus Samuel grew. I think that's instructive. Samuel's a prophet of God, but he still has growing to do. And if a prophet, Samuel is a first ballot Israelite Hall of Famer. If he still needs to grow, it's probably safe to say that you and me still have some growing to do also. That's in verse 19. Uh, We're told that, that God didn't let any of Samuel's words fail. That doesn't mean Samuel could speak into existence whatever he wanted. It just meant he never spoke anything as having come from God that God didn't actually tell him. And then all in verse 20, all of Israel accepts and understands, recognizes, confirms that Samuel is a prophet. And then we get this really important verse and a half that's on the screen. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Does that sound like a big deal? Had God always been there? Yes. Is there anywhere that God's not? No. But the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word of the Lord. Here's the important part. We know the Word of the Lord now. And that's the story, the next half verse, that's the story of how the Word of Samuel came to all Israel. But the important part is Israel could say, we've got the Word of the Lord again. It's really hard to know what God wants if God doesn't tell us what He wants. True? This undid the, the, the problem that this story started with. Verse 1 of chapter 3 said, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That's a tragedy. You know, it is still a tragedy when the word of the Lord is rare in someone's life. But the difference between us now and Israel 3,000 years ago is that when the, le- the word of the Lord is rare in our lives, that's a self-inflicted tragedy. Because we have way more words of the Lord than even Samuel got. That's what this book is. It is the word of the Lord. And you know how Eli, Eli just had to accept the message that he got. He didn't get to send Samuel back and say, hey, I don't like that message. Why don't you go ask for a different one and come try it again? The Word of God is the Word of God. And you just have to reconcile yourself to the Word. That part hasn't changed. This is the message we have. 
God's never been in the business of telling everyone everything they want to know. And he certainly hasn't been in the business of telling people what they want to hear. This book will offend you. I don't care who you are. You are not batting a thousand with the God of the universe. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't act like you. His word is what we have to reconcile ourselves to. This is God we're talking about. Let him do what he says is best. That's why I always encourage you, don't waste your time seeking your own separate message from God. Don't don't waste your time trying to feel what God is, is telling you. You're just going to get misled and deceived. If you want to hear from the Lord, read this book. If you want to hear His voice audibly, read this book out loud. Because it's the only message we're getting and it's sufficient. It's plenty. And then in those things where He hasn't told us what to do, that's where we just walk by faith. Dive into this thing. Read it. That's why we come to a church to be around where the, the word is proclaimed just verse by verse in its whole, in its entirety. It's such a privilege to have this. Do you know what some of our Christian brothers and sisters in some sections of China or North Korea or Afghanistan, you know what they would give to have access to this thing we take for granted? So read it, hear it, study it, but then we have to do it. Because as far as a Christian goes, the person who like reads it and understands it but doesn't do it doesn't have much advantage over the person who didn't read it in the first place. And that's the story of how God called a full-on prophet of God into his service 3,000 years ago in Shiloh. It teaches us, be willing to serve God. But if you're going to be willing to serve God, you better be willing to do the thankless, the forgotten, the difficult, and the painful. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know who you can start visiting, where you can start serving. I don't know what that looks like for you. But here's what I do know. If you will be faithful in the difficult and the frustrating and the painful, it will ultimately be worth it and you will experience little sprinkles of joy and victory that make all the rest of it worth it. This passage reminds us that when, when God seems to be silent or inactive, we can still trust He is doing what is best for us because He is doing what seems best to Him. And make sure, this passage reminds us to make sure to consume a healthy diet from this book and put it to work in our lives. It is where we get our nourishment. Let's pray with me and we'll close.
Our Father and our God, I thank you so much for this ancient, this 3,000-year-old book that speaks to us in a contemporary fashion right here where we live today. God, I thank you that you have not been silent as we are concerned. You have given us your word, a, a light unto our path, a lamp for our feet. God, help us to grow an appetite for your word and to start exercising that muscle of, of loving your word. God, help us to see where your word would shape us to be different than we, than we are. Help us to accept your word as best, even when that seems very difficult to us. And God, make us servants. We want to be great in your eyes, and we know that means serving others. So give us an appetite to be, uh, to have your patience and perseverance through the difficult and through the painful that we might have, see and experience the little sprinkles of joy and victory you give your faithful. And thank you that one day we will see the victory that you have won which will make all our frustrating service more than worth it. God, we love you. Thanks for your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.